Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 351 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is David Baldacci. He's the author of 37 novels for adults, mostly in the mystery and thriller genres, each of which have become both a national and international bestseller, including his debut novel Absolute Power, which was adapted into a feature film starring Clint Eastwood. David has also published seven books for younger readers, including his heroic fantasy novel The Finisher, the first volume in the Vega Jane series, which also includes The Keeper, The Width of the World, and The Stars Below. And now here's our interview with David Baldacci. All right, so we're here with David Baldacci. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so The Finisher was your first fantasy novel. So just tell us a bit about your background as a fantasy fan. Well, you know, I grew up reading um, a lot of fantasy works. I was a big Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis, Lewis Carroll. Um, I loved uh, fantasy that dealt with animals pretending to be human beings. And so it was just, you know, as a little kid, your imagination runs wild. And kids love alternate universes because they can really, I think, embrace that. And um, so as a kid, I enjoyed it. And then as adults, I got to the point where I wanted to try my hand at writing one. So The Magic Squirrel was one of your favorites? Yeah, it's based on a Russian parable. It's the first book I remember reading and finishing when I was a little kid, maybe seven years old. Pretty lengthy book. And um, that was the first time I ever really remembered missing being away from a book. And I wanted to get home from school and jump back into somebody else's imagination, which is all that you do when you open the book. And um, I years later, probably about five or six years ago, I went online and bought a first edition of the book just because I wanted to have it again because I remembered and had such fond recollections of it. Mm. So have you ever gone and looked up other versions of that Russian tale? No, I never have. Um, that one that one was enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> you can't top the magic squirrel, right? That's right. So uh, so when you were reading authors like Tolkien and Lewis Carroll um, and C.S. Lewis, how did you – how were you coming across those books? Were you just randomly coming across them or were people giving them to you? No, I was a big library nut uh, growing up, and we would either go to the school library when we were in school, or um, parents would take us to the county library every week, and we'd check out, you know, a ton of books and take them home and read them. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. I never really had an opportunity to leave there when I was a kid growing up, but I really kind of saw the world and also alternative universes through books, so that's why I've been a big proponent of libraries my whole life. Um, that was the magic door for me. And, opened my eyes to a lot of different things. It's probably one of the key reasons I'm a writer today. So did you have uh, friends who were also fantasy fans? Yeah. I mean, it really was like um, that was kind of the thing, Um, you know, to have a different universe you could delve into where anything was possible. And, you know, back then we, you know, there were no video games, there was no internet, there was no nothing. And really our, our main occupation as kids was just to go outside and create imaginary worlds to play in. And, you know, little boys usually involved some type of war <laughs> and fighting and stuff like that. But that was really, that was our internet back then. That was our PlayStation. We just went out and came up with the stuff and then went about playing and trying to live in those worlds. So, were, were, I mean, were there fantasy and science fiction elements to those make-believe games that you would play, like alien planets or uh, magic swords? Absolutely. Stuff like that? There were, yeah, there was, it was all of that, you know. We were different beings from a different place. We had magical powers. We had special weapons. Uh, we could do things that, you know, kids normally couldn't do, but it was fun. It just got you out of real life for a while. It was cool. I mean, do you remember any specifics of what, what kind of games you would play? 
you know, we we it would always be kind of like a good versus evil, and so you got to you know everybody picked their sides. Everybody wanted to be on the evil side, hmm. uh, but some some people had to play the good side too. So it was often like either you know chasing clues, building traps. Um, having magical powers, you know, that we try to be a little bit consistent with. Either we had these, we call them strap guns. You know, you build them out of wood, and you have rubber straps built into them. Those became like our magical swords and stuff. And it's, uh, you know, it was a way to spend the spend the spend the day after school or during the summer. I mean, you know, back then nobody would think about doing it today. Back then, you know, you you left the house at eight o'clock in the morning on a summer's day and you came back home for dinner. So, I mean, did you ever write any of those down? Those adventures? You know, when I first started writing stories down, they were more reality-based. Even when I was like in elementary school, a lot of them were just kind of. It's it, it's it's really tough to build an imaginary world, um, even as a kid. Now you can build it in your head, and you can have lots of little details when you sit down and actually try to plot it out and mark it out. You're building an entire world that has a billion different little pieces to it, and that's a lot. That could be overwhelming uh, for a, a little kid. At least it would have was for me. So when I started doing my little stories, I had more modest ambitions. Usually they had to do with family, traveling one place to another, something more emotional, something more dramatic. It seems like all the bizarre sci-fi stuff that I would come up with and play, that was all in my head, and I never really thought about putting it down. It seemed a little overwhelming at that point. Did you ever have adults who would try to tell you not to read fantasy, to read something more grounded instead? No, never did. My parents let us read whatever we wanted to read. Um, you know, I'm sure there were probably people out there who thought that sci-fi and fantasy wasn't the right thing for, you know, little kids to be reading, but nobody ever directly, you know, told me to not, not do it. Not that I would have listened anyway. <laughs> and so then how did it come about that you decided to finally write a fantasy book of your own? Well, you know, I'd, I'd written 40 adult books, um, and I, I got a gift from my wife on Christmas Day back in 2008. And uh, it was a blank page, but it was a journal, a nice little leather-bound journal. And I had been thinking about, you know, doing something out of my typical genre. I'm known as a thriller writer, mystery writer. Um, and I remember taking that that journal and kind of running away in my little cubbyhole, and I wrote the name Vega Jane down, and, you know, so what? <laughs> it just <laughs> came to me, but that's all really I had. And I knew that I wanted to build some kind of fantasy around this character who I knew was going to be instinctively. I just knew I wanted to write about a young female protagonist. And then I sat down and focused on, okay, you know what, this is this is going to be a world. You need to figure out what the world is going to be. And for me, um, having read, you know, a fair amount of fantasy over the years, I thought you could do it in two ways. At least most of the books that I'd read, you can do it in two ways. You can go big or go small. You can go really broad and shallow, or you can go intimate and deep. And I decided it for the latter. I decided to go intimate and deep and start with a really small village called Wormwood. That uh, wasn't wasn't very much to it. Not a whole lot of people lived there, but it was Vega Jane's home, and I could describe it in great detail and really immerse readers in that world, which I think is important for fantasy because you can quickly lose control of a fantasy story, and all of a sudden everything is happening so fast. There are no rules established, there's no consistency, and the reader just lost. It's like being on a runaway train with no brakes. So I wanted to kind of slow it down a little bit, establish this world, let people become familiar with the language, with the ways of the people and the depths of the characters. And then with that in hand, then I could really go about, you know, with pacing and action and things and events unfolding and happening. Um, and that's the way I chose to do it.
Now, see, that name Wormwood of the village, knowing that you're a C.S. Lewis fan, makes me think of the screw tape letters. Was there any influence there? Yeah. Yeah, plus it's a biblical reference, too. Wormwood is traditionally known as the place of despair. Um, and Wugmort's, um, I used an inversion of that, of Mugwort's. Um, Wugmort's are people from Wormwood. That's what they call themselves. Mugwort's is a type of like a flower that also has a sense of depression and despair about it. And, um, so, you know, it's a little bit symbolic because these are people who, they go about their lives. It's not a lot of joy in their lives. Um, and I think uh, one reason, at least in my mind, and people find this out later, is that everything about Wormwood is invented. It's a fabrication. It's a whole lie. Their lives are built on. And that's really the, the genesis of the story, and that's the motivation for Vega Jane to leave Wormwood so she can figure out the truth of herself. Well, and so Vega Jane, I mean, there's the star of Vega. Is that involved with yes. the inspiration? Yes. Yeah, that's where the name Vega came from, um, the, the, the Vega star. Um, and, you know, it has, you know, some, um, um, I think it's the largest star that you can see from planet Earth. And so there's some other indicia that drew me towards it as picking that for a name. And, and I wrote the story sort of with the colloquialisms used by Brits. Um, I admire British life, uh, greatly, particularly their dry sense of humor. And Jane is a very famous, well-known, uh, British last name. There's a, very famous series of military books, Jane on, you know, yeah. battleships, Jane on warships and things like that. So I think that's really where the name Vega Jane came from. So talk a little bit more about Wormwood. Uh, so what you, you mentioned life is not very happy in Wormwood. So why is life not very happy in Wormwood? Well, it's um, if you can think of a world uh, where you have to work so hard just to exist and subsist, and where, you know, a few people have more than everyone else. And there's a sort of a dichotomy of people. There's the council who live very well and seem to have, you know, a very nice existence, live in better homes and wear better clothes. And then there's everyone else. Um, people like Vega who live in a rooming house. We, you know, sleep in a room with 30 other people. Um, and she has to take care of her brother, younger brother. Her parents are both incapacitated. Um, there's a mean spiritedness to the place as well, where uh, women are looked down upon. There's not they're seen as sort of second-class citizens, um, and not a lot of people care for Vega Jane because she's an independent streak. And what people want in Mormon most of all is people to sort of just follow along blindly, like sheep, and accept what they're told and not don't question it. Um, and sometimes in those societies, you get one person who stands out, and they're hated because of that because they're disrupting something. Um, that people have just grown to accept and grown used to and are complacent about. And, and Vega Jane, she has this sense that everything she's been told growing up is a lie. Um, I feel like that's something that a lot of young people can relate to. Do you, do you, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, I certainly do. I mean, look, there, there are bewildering you know, array of rules that govern our society, you know, the do's and the don'ts and the accepted and the not accepted and um, a lot of it doesn't make sense. Um, you know, we, I was watching the Michael Cohen hearings yesterday and, um, I mean, it's, it's bizarre to me that we live in a world, uh, where, uh, something like that can take place and, um, in the questions that were asked by a lot of people, um, saying, well, you know what? He's a liar except when he said something to help the president and then he was telling the truth, of course. Um, so for young people, 
Um, I think that the world can be really complicated and they're told to act a certain way, uh, you know, get good grades, got to go to college, otherwise your life is ruined, um, got to do something at college that may not interest you, but you'll get a good job, and then you just lead your life and you raise your kids the same way and let them go and do exactly what you did. Um, it's a, you know, one size fits all sort of mentality sometimes. So I think, yeah, I think kids naturally rebel against that. I mean, I really felt as a kid lied to in, in school, you know, they would tell you, um, you know, before Columbus, everyone believed the world was flat and he proved the world was round and his crew was all afraid they were going to sail off the edge of the earth. And, and you find out later that's all total nonsense. And yeah, uh, like, why did, why well, was everybody just. Yeah, history is written as a convenience, and not only written by the victors, um, it's written as, a, as convenience um, to send a particular message. I mean, it's often written by the people who want to make themselves look the best. I mean, if you you look at um, the Texas, um, I don't know if it's the Texas Library Association or whatever. Texas is a huge state, and they have obviously an enormous influence on the sort of books that are allowed in curriculums in all 50 states. Um, this is the way the system is set up, and I found this out about ten or twelve years ago. And you know, and and uh, they was a big push because the people on those boards are very conservative. It's a big push to all of a sudden start teaching, you know, the fantastic um, sort of legacy and structure and benefits of capitalism um, to sort of teach, you know, uh, that Ronald Reagan was the greatest president ever. Um, to downplay the fact and not really talk about um, Hillary Clinton at all because she's not that important, and to sort of talk about liberalism as something to be to, something to be equated with communism, um, which for me is just so egregious. It's, it's I can't even almost stand it. Um, and so that's sometimes a lot of school curriculums, you know, are following that because that's what one state said. You know, history our history should be. Um, if you look at Native American history, I mean, they, they've been. Uh, you know, vilified, and the whole story's been turned upside down. You know, Custer was a hero. Um, same with African Americans. Um, you know, it's just uh, history is uh, um, is taught in a lot of schools. Um, has no connection to the truth in many respects, and I don't blame kids for having felt like. You know, I grew up in the '60s and '70s, and you know, we were we had a curriculum. We were taught certain things, and today that a lot of them probably been overturned, no longer taught because they weren't correct, but they were just accepted. In, in Richmond, Virginia, too, you were you were taught that the Confederacy was not about slavery, it was, it was about states' rights, um, that Lee and Jackson and Stewart were all heroes. We have a Monument Avenue with all their fantastic statues to people. And they were those, they, you know, We were taught they were great patriots, even though they were actually traitors, turned against their country. And any other... Uh, in any other context would have been hung uh, for treason. Um, and I do remember in 1996, there was this, in talking about, people say, well, there's no racism left in this country. And I know we're getting off topic, but <laughs> I'm saying anyway. Um, no racism left in this country. In 1996, there were like fights and riots and stuff in Richmond, Virginia for one reason, because the city wanted to put a statue of Arthur Ashe up on Monument Avenue next to Robert E. Lee. So uh, lots of people had a big problem with that. And, of course, they'll, they'll never say they're racist. They'll just say, well, you know, he was a tennis player. <laughs> well, I, I mean, a major aspect of the plot in The Finisher is that um, Wormwood is building a wall all around the village to keep out what turns yeah. out to be an exaggerated threat. And it's kind of hard not to see connections between that and 
contemporary politics. Was that intentional or? Well, I mean, I wrote I wrote the book in 2008, so I certainly didn't know anything that was going to be happening you know, recently that, that you know you're alluding to. Uh, but walls have always been built to keep people not not only to keep people who don't like look like you out, uh, but also to keep people in from finding out that the people who don't look like you are actually really great people and have a lot in common with you, uh, because that could be seen as you know diluting um, a certain type of people that they want uh, to be part of the society. Uh, so walls are already, and that's the function of walls. You know, it's to keep people the same and to keep people who would want to come in and actually diversify society out and to keep people who's in, in inside the wall from finding out that actually diversity is a good thing. You mentioned Native Americans, and I heard you say that you drew partially on Native American and Middle Eastern um, mythology or folktales uh, to inspire yeah. this book? Yeah, there's some, you know, I right off the top of my head in, in the finisher, I don't remember exactly. There was, I know for a Middle Eastern, um, there's a, a huge serpent um, in uh, the book called a Jabot. And um, if I remember correctly, it was Persian mythology where there was a creature somewhat like that. It didn't have all the multiple heads. Um, uh, but it was called a different name, uh, similar to Jabot. Um, I called it a Jabot just because that's what a snake does to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you jab by the fangs. Um, the Native American aspect, um, I know there might have been some of the creatures. Um, I don't know if it was in the, it's certainly, it, it, I, have, I have a river in there, sort of like the River Styx, uh, Egyptian mythology, um, where you have the sort of the Lord of the Dead under the river. Um, but I, I, I did, even though it's fantasy, I did read a lot of research. I mean, I went back and read a lot about different types of classical mythology, different folk tales, parables, and things like that, that I thought might at least give me some ideas to come up with some original concepts in the story and sort of ground, you know, the tale that I was trying to tell in the series um, in classical mythology and uh, I thought that was important just to have it have, may have it consistent and also to sort of push me, you know, to create, you know, new things. Um, and, um, and but I like that. I mean, I always like doing research for all my books. I didn't think I would be doing a lot of research for a fantasy novel. You know, you just by default, you think you just make all the stuff up. But that's not really the case. You need inspiration. And it's important, I think, now what's come before as well, just to give yourself a grounding. I've never written in fantasy before. I'd certainly read a lot of books, but I wanted to go back and sort of re-educate myself about that space. How about monsters like the Cobble and the Maniac? Do you remember where those ideas came from? Yeah, the the Cobble, the, the, the Maniac, um, you know, obviously it um, will, you know, drive you crazy, hence the name, although it was a little bit different spelling on it. Um, you know, that's the kind of for me, symbolically, and that's where a lot of these creatures came from, that this is, you know, a creature that wraps itself around you and doesn't let go and then drives you crazy. And for me, um, I see, you know, people uh, who allow that to happen, but their own minds do it to, to them. And I'll you know, give you an example, like conspiracy theorists who won't believe the facts that are staring them in the face. They always look for an alternative, you know, truth out there. And they're actually slowly becoming, you know, maniacs because they're allowing their own mind to be turned against them by denying truth. 
the cobbles were just kind of cool. I mean, I, I like the play on words. They're cobbled together. Um, and they're very formidable because, you know, they come at you in a group. Um, you kill one, you still have two more. You kill two, you still have another one left to go. Um, I just, I, I like the idea of creating these types of creatures that would, are very difficult to defeat. Um, and particularly for, you know, in, in Vega in the first novel, she's only 14 going on 15, but, um, she really had to use her wits and cleverness, uh, in order to defeat these, you know, types of creatures. How about this, a weapon called the elemental? Where'd that come from? Yeah, the elemental is, you know, again, it's really, um, comes in the fact that it's uh, grounded in the elements, you know, um, of the world. It's a it's a thing that can fly. It's a thing that can manipulate, become like a chameleon, change from a lance or a spear into a small wand or stick. Um, and it really becomes elemental, again, a play on words, to Vega Jane's survival, um, just as her chain Destin does. And Destin, again, is another sort of play on words. Um, that was part of her destiny was to find that chain and then use it so that she could have, you know, I, I couldn't send her in battle against all these, you know, incredibly strong and powerful creatures without some tools and the elemental destin and the ring that allowed her to become invisible that her grandfather left to her surreptitiously were the main tools that she would use. And then all the rest of it was just her own wits and instincts and be able to think on her feet quickly. So it was important for me to give her some tools. Otherwise, I mean, even in fantasy, you're still bound a little bit by plausibility. And there's no way in the world a reader's going to accept the fact that a 14-year-old boy or girl could battle through these you know, types of uh, wars and, and encounters with these powerful creatures without some type of magical help. And those are the three main ones that I came up with. I mean, that term elemental is most familiar to me from Dungeons and Dragons, and it's much different in the game. But I was just curious if you would ever play Dungeons and Dragons. I've never played Dungeons and Dragons. I know that makes me sort of an anomaly. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I grew up in a I grew up in a time period where that you know those games weren't available. There were, that technology didn't exist, um, and it just really wasn't a part of my childhood. Well, you should try it sometimes because it's kind of like you were describing those childhood make-believe games, but you can still do it uh -huh. as an adult. Oh, I know. Absolutely. My son's a big gamer. Yeah. Um, well, so talk about the process of getting this published because you, you sort of, uh, it was a little bit under the radar how you went about writing it and uh, submitting it. Yeah, no one knew I was writing this book. I When I was over in London for um, an event that my British publisher was throwing for one of my adult thrillers that was coming out there, I told my agent I had a surprise for you and um, when you get back to the U.S. I'll send it up to you and there was the manuscript for the, for the finisher. So I wanted to meet with them. I said, look, this is really important for me. I'm not going to back down from this requirement. I do not want to send this book out under my name to publishers because I want to have some validation. I want them to buy it uh, because they think the book is really good, not because my name's on it. They think they can sell a million copies just because of that. And so we agreed that was the way we would do it and I I came up with the name, pseudonym Janus Pope, and we set it out under there as, you know, ostensibly a debut novelist. Um, again, some of the terms and the way people speak and all that, um, when Scholastic bought it, they thought, you know, they had no idea it was me, and they thought I was actually a Brit. Um, and so when I went up to meet with them, after they bought the book, they were 
incredibly surprised. But that was the only way I was going to do it. Otherwise, it would have just been a cheat, I think, and, um, that you know they would just bought it so they could publish me. Um, and I didn't want that. It would have been no purpose for me at all to do, do it that way. I mean, that pen name Janus is the two-faced Roman god. So people yep. might have guessed it was a pseudonym. Did anyone guess that? Well, if they did, they never thought it was me. <laughs> <laughs> that was just not my space, you know? <laughs> so what what was their reaction like? How, how did they find out and what was their reaction like that it was you? I remember the the um, um, the head of Scholastic um, and the editor who bought the book um, were the only two people at Scholastic that knew it was me um, after we sold the book to them, we revealed who it was. And so they arranged to have this gathering of, you know, about 150 people who worked Scholastic up in New York, this restaurant. And um, so they said, you know, we want to introduce you to the author of the finisher. And um, and then and I walked. And um, a lot of people at Scholastic had, had known me, not just from my adult books, but I had done a... Um, one of the novels in the 39 Clues series. I did the final novel in that series, um, and they had asked me to do that uh, years ago, uh, just because they had read my adult novels. And, I, and there were children in my novels, and they thought that I could do a good job with that. So they were stunned. I mean, everybody was stunned, but everybody jumped up and started clapping and cheering, and they thought it was a good thing. And it's been a great ride with Scholastic, and they're a terrific publisher, and I've made a lot of really lifelong friends um, who work at Scholastic just because of, you know, the experience publishing the Vega Jane series with them. Well, so you mentioned that the book is written in sort of this British idiom. Did you, was that all just out of your head or did you have to consult with anyone to, to create that language? Well, I, I, I visited there probably 30 times uh, all over country and also Scotland and Ireland as well. Um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of British authors um, big fan of British movies and television, um, and I had a you know pretty good grasp of you know word choices that I might want to employ, um, and you know accents and things like that. Um, so uh, I can't say that I didn't do any research at all. I certainly probably ran some by people who I trusted um, uh, to give me you know good opinions about it, but it was you know something I just had picked up over the years and. You know, I keep journals and stuff when I travel, and um, again, I have a lot of friends who are Brits and um, speak with them on a pretty regular basis. And you know, writers have to be curious, and they have to be good listeners, and they have to remember things. And and I uh, managed to do that. So you said that the you had this this character Vega Jane came to you. Uh, that was the initial spark, right? Right. And then, but then it was a five year process to write the the book. Um, yes. So, so was it like, like how much of, was it steady progress or did you have four yeah. years of no. thinking and yeah. Yeah. It was not steady progress at all. It was fits and starts, a lot of torn up paper, a lot of erased pages on the computer. I couldn't get to the point where I, where I wanted the story to be set. Uh, and really wanted I, what I wanted her character to have to be able to do. What was the journey? What was the obstacle? What was the object of the whole series? And for like over four years, I was really kind of just never able to get over that hump. I had her and I had a few other characters, um, didn't even have the village of Wormwood set in my mind. And then probably, you know, for a little over four years in the process, I sat down and thought more about it. I did some more reading on different things. 
And that's when I decided, you know what, you've been, you're, you're overthinking this. You're trying to build this entire universe from the page one, and it's ridiculous. You can't do that. You've got to start small. And let's just see if we start small, what comes to your imagination. And that's really when I had an idea for, okay, let's just, you know, let's just start it. Let's pretend it's like a little British village in the middle of nowhere. And um, who would might inhabit that? You know, place. You have a high street, you have a low street, you have some shops, you have a church that called steeples. You have to have a place for people to work. You know, Vega Jane works as, as a finisher, and uh, it stacks. And then, um, okay, well, she's got to have some people. Well, she has a little brother. Her parents are incapacitated, um, and she takes care of her brother. Uh, she's not well liked in town because she's different, which is an important theme for me. Who's her best friend? She's going to have a best friend. Okay. And I created Del as her best friend. Um, and you first meet her when she's up her tree, which is a place she likes to go to be alone. So it was really baby steps at that point. And once I, I started thinking of it in, the, in that very narrow sort of vein, instead of this broad, like, oh, my God, okay, I've got to whole, build the whole world like right away, um, I took baby steps, and all of a sudden it started to come. And within probably, I wrote the majority of the book in like seven months. Um, from that point forward. And, uh, and it just goes to show, look, I had a lot of other projects I was working on, some films, some television stuff, other adult thrillers. So it wasn't like I could focus every minute of my t- writing time on that book. I couldn't. I had, by the time, you know, while I was thinking about trying to write this book and what I wanted to write, I think I'd written eight other books, you know, during that four and a half year period. Um, but once I got down to just taking baby steps and not trying to overthink it or overdo it, uh, then it really started to come, and I could think in a compartmentalized way, you know, vague in her, tr- in her tree, okay, the, the dog's chasing someone into the quad, Delf coming to visit her, her going to her job at Stacks, picking up John, you know, after school, going to visit their parents at the care, those little baby steps, those little scenes, and all of a sudden the world started to fill itself out. So then once you had the first book under your belt, did the other three flow more uh, easily? Yeah, they did. Um, one, I think because I had the major characters that were going to lead the series fully in place. Um, and I had a firmer idea of what I wanted them to do in each subsequent book. The the Keeper, the second novel, was all about a, lab, a labyrinth of challenges in the quag. And, you know, the, the, the five uh, rings that they would have to get through, a lot of fantasies employ things like that. Um, and... Um, and it, within each of those, I, you know, tried to build a different world uh, that they would have to go into. But the other important thing was, you know, when you go into, on a journey like that, you have to meet people along the way who you can learn from. And Astrid Prime was the primary one. She's the keeper of the quag. And she was a character that I fleshed out fairly quickly because I knew that what I wanted her to be. I wanted her to be a ally, mentor, potential enemy of Vega Jane, who was conflicted about what she was supposed to do. Her job as a keeper was to keep Wormwood safe, and so she couldn't let Vega Jane escape. Uh, she was going to imprison her for life, um, but also at the same time teach her how to be a sorceress, and then had a change of heart because of some of the issues that came up in the plot. Um, so that one came pretty readily, and then once they got out of the quag uh, and into the world that inhabited the last two books, which is a little more modern, you had, you know, cars running around and people that lived and dressed differently and all that. Um, 
then those two books, you know, I probably wrote each of those. It probably took a year each to write the last two books um, while I was writing other stuff as well. But, you know, it did come a little more easily. I had a more defined sense of purpose. Um, and, you know, the, the final book, The Stars Below, was just all about setting up how I exactly wanted to end it, how I was just going to do battle. Um, but in the in the final book, I really wanted to emphasize the fact that even even though she'd come a long way, she was still only 18 in the stars below. And in a lot of the book, she fails. Um, she makes mistakes, poor judgments. She trusts people she shouldn't. She fails to trust people that she should. Um, but each time she got back up and took that knowledge and used it to make better decisions going forward. And I just thought that was a really important life lesson. That that's a template for life, actually. I want, you know, sometimes kids these days, particularly, you know, our main home is up in Northern Virginia. It is a colossally, just a colossal pressure cooker up there. You know, every mom and dad has five PhDs. They speak twelve languages. They've done all this great stuff, and they expect their kids to be exactly like them. So unless you have a four point eight and a perfect score in the SAT, you're a failure. And if you don't have nine Ivy League schools wanting to take you, they're like, oh, my God, well, you know, every other kid in the neighborhood does. What's wrong with you? And it's horrible. It's terrible. The pressure the kids are under. I want kids to realize that, you know what, you're going to fail a lot in your life. And that's a great thing. You know why? Because at least in my life, the most important lessons that made me a better person and a stronger person and more informed person are when I screwed up. You know, the failings, are the, those are the places where you learn. You don't really learn a whole lot through your successes, but damn, you sure do with your failings. And I wanted kids to take that message away. Well, and Vega's personality is very willful, and she never shies away from confrontation. And I'm curious, to what extent do you see that as her strength? And to what extent is that something that, uh, you know, uh, is sort of an Achilles heel for her as well? Yeah, it's 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 sort of half and half, but I would put my thumb on the scale that it's better to confront than passively follow. Um, but it gets you into trouble, and you know I think everybody knows that it's the easiest thing in the world is just to go along with the, the crowd, and nobody gets mad at you, and you just meekly follow along. And again, I you know I live most of the time in Washington D.C. and they have an army of people up there who are paid really a great deal of money to convince you of what you should believe and you know how you should vote and what your opinion should be and what you should accept the truth as being. Um doesn't make it good. It's oftentimes not good. Um, but I also think it, it's it's a detriment to her as well. She creates a lot of trouble for herself because she doesn't accept what people are telling her as fact. She questions people. People don't like to be questioned, particularly those in power. Um, and they just want they don't want to bother with trying to explain things to you. They just want you to accept it. But I think, you know, the history has been changed by people who, who confront, you know, and uh, the people who don't confront, history doesn't remember them because they didn't do anything memorable. Um, you know, Rosa Parks, she was confrontational on that bus, wasn't she? And <laughs> why do we remember 60 years later? It's because if she just sat down on the back of the bus like she was told to, um, which a lot of people did, we'd never hear, have heard about Rosa Parks. Um, it's the people who stand up for things they believe in and against bullies and against other people who are trying to tell them how to live their lives other than the ones we remember. But it doesn't come without hardship. And a lot of people died in the civil rights movement even because they stood up in front and they were shot or hung or some other terrible thing was done to them. So it, it comes with sacrifice and, you know, not without hardship. I've heard you say that you write the sort of strong-willed female characters that you do because 
those are the sorts of women that have surrounded you throughout your life. And I, I heard you tell this story about how you met your wife, which was really striking to me. Speaking of sort of confrontational, could you tell that story? Yes. My, my, um, I was a, a trial lawyer in Washington, D.C., um, and I was at a party, and um, I was telling people about some of the cases. I was cocky and probably obnoxious, and I was full of myself. I'll truly admit that. And um, I felt a tap on my shoulder. I turned around. It was this beautiful young woman who was standing there, and I had no idea who she was. And she said, you know, I heard you telling people you're a lawyer. And I said, yeah. I was thinking maybe she wanted to hear about some of the cases. And she said, can I give you a piece of advice? And I said, yeah, sure. She goes, I wouldn't go around telling people that. And then she just turned and walked off. <laughs> and I was like, wow, she just really insulted me. And I really had to date her. <laughs> So, and so my wife, my, you know, my wife is, she's, she's a confronter. She doesn't accept anything that people tell her just because they tell her, you know, it is what it is. And she has no problem, you know, getting right in there and standing up. And that's all she's always been. We raised our daughter to be that way. Um, and, um, I grew up with that. My, my grandmother lived with us for the last 10 years of her life. She and my mom were from the top of a mountain in Western, Southwestern Virginia. Uh, very hard scrabble existence, coal mining country. You know, she was the youngest of 10. and I mean, she had to fight for everything she ever had. And so I grew up with those role models and that's all I've ever known. I've never, I've never met a damsel in distress. I don't really know what, uh, that would look like. So all of my books, including my adult thrillers, those are the type of female, uh, role models that, uh, you know, I was just, I have a trainer down here in Florida that I go to and, I went back. I'd been up in Virginia. We came down here and I, I work out and I keep fit, although I'm, you know, I'm getting up there in age, but so I went there and worked out with her for the first time in like seven or eight months. And she, she really put me through the ringer. And at the end, I was like laying on my back. I felt like I was just going to puke. And, um, she came over and, you know, gave me a power bar and some water and a wet towel. And of course she's fine. <laughs> and, uh, I looked it up and I said, yep. I said, this is just another reminder of which sex is actually the weaker one. She goes, well, I'm glad you finally got that. <laughs> so when your wife said you shouldn't tell people that, it was because she thought you were being uh, conceited or boring? Yeah. Or? Well, she thought I was, she thought I was being all of those things. Uh, conceited, boring, obnoxious, and a lawyer. You know, <laughs> she worked at, she worked at a law firm too, and, uh, not as a lawyer. And, uh, she, she tells people, she goes, I never, could have ever imagined myself marrying a lawyer. Just not going to happen. <laughs> so, so does she do that kind of thing a lot? Like if you're out uh, at a, a party or something? She, you know, if, if um, she picks her spots, but um, she's not afraid to give her opinion, you know, on things like that. And particularly, um, you know, she has a good eye for design and all that as well. And we've done a number of renovations at different places and, you know, and, the contracting world, the subcontractors, that's a totally male-dominated world. It's just the way it is. I, you know, I'm sure women could do a great job, but I don't know. They're just not in that field. So I've seen her, and I'm kind of like, hey, was a, I was a trial lawyer. I, my job was to get them to court and, you know, battle it out, and I did that well. But that's not really my personality. Um, but I've seen her go up against general contractors, electricians, plumbers, people, car people, tell her, you have no idea what you're talking about. And stands, you know, she just stands and goes toe to toe with them, and they figure out she does know what she's talking about. And finally, they, you know, they fall in line. It's not to say that she, and she'll tell you, I'm not always right, but I'm not going to have somebody 
you know, belittle me and think I don't know what I'm talking about just because I'm a woman. And that happens a lot in life. I mean, it does to this day. I mean, I, I go back and look at some of the old movies and TV shows and all that that I used to watch when I was a kid and enjoyed. And then now I look at them and watch them today and I, I cringe, you know, at how people, minorities, women were treated in those, in those. And it was just accepted as being, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's just the way the world is. Um, so I was watching an old Dragnet episode. I don't know why. I mean, I, I happened on YouTube and they had a bunch of them on there. I was watching it and this is 1968 and, um, the captain, you know, Jack Webb's captain was talking about, and you know, with the, the horrors and travesties and, and the, the uh, ap- absolute evil associated, you know, about homosexuals and everybody's nodding in the room. You know, absolutely. My God, homosexual. You're kidding. The, the devils. And, um, so, just, you yeah, know, that's where it is. Well, and speaking of police, I mean, there was a scene in The Finisher where um, Vega is concerned that the, the deputized police, basically, are just going to shoot her and pretend that they that she provoked them somehow. And that also seems to resonate right. with a lot of contemporary issues. No, it absolutely does. I, again, you know, as, as a lawyer, um, you know, in the United States, justice is determined by how much money you have. Um, and if you can afford a crackerjack lawyer, um, you're probably going to win. And I, I tell people, I'll give you an, uh, I'll give you one example. There are, there are tens of thousands of people on death row across the United States right now. Um, none of them are millionaires. <laughs> and that's not to say that millionaires are not kill people. They have. Um, Jeffrey Epstein is a, pedophile he was a sex trafficker he um you know had sex with underage girls hundreds of them as did all of his wealthy friends um he should have been in prison for life if he were a poor man he would be he got a 13-month sentence um that allowed him to only have to sleep at like a county jail in a private room and during the day he got to go to his fabulous office and conduct his business i mean can you imagine anybody else getting a deal like that? But this guy's a billionaire. So, you know, people were paid off or people were afraid of him or he just an army of lawyers and investigators who could go after everybody, including prosecutors on the case. So justice is how much money do you have? Um, so I'm not saying that police are bad. Most police are great and they serve their communities well. It only takes one person in a, in a department to ruin their reputation. Um, I do think that there's been, you know, police abuse and bad things all along. It's just that now we live in a world where everybody has a phone, on, has a camera on their phone in a video. Now we see a lot more of it, but that's not to say it always hasn't existed. It has. I mean, do you think that that, that idea that you get as much justice as you can pay for, uh, is that just an intractable fact of life or based on your experience as a lawyer, would you, are there any reforms that you would uh, promote? I, I certainly would. Uh, no, I don't think it's intractable. I think I think that we need to have uh, judges that will fairly, you know, apply the law. We need to have uh, prosecutors um, who will not um, bend just because the lawyer they're uh, across from is not a public defender who has nine thousand cases and about ten minutes to spend with each client, but a renowned litigator uh, who charges. an hour and who has the resources to do scorched earth. Um, I think you, you know, you do your job, you stand up to them, you treat the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world just as you would anybody else. 
um, that's a human problem. It's not. A, it's not a. It's not the way that court systems are built. The courts are systems are built, and the jails are built, and everything else to convict the guilty and punish them appropriately, and then um, absolve the innocent, allow them to go about their lives. Um, but I, I don't believe that you know just because how much money you have should dictate whether one you're guilty or innocent, or two whether your punishment should be appropriate or just a giveaway. Um, that's just the people problem. So we have the we have the structure in place to apply the law fairly to everyone. Uh, it's just the people within that system have to do so. Yeah, I was curious. One of the uh, epigraphs on the book it says. Persons seeking to find scholarship herein will be sued. Persons motivated to discover meaning will be exiled. Persons hoping to unearth an allegory will be summarily ordained. Could you just talk about what that means? <laughs> I'm a big Mark Twain fan, and you'll, the opening um, for uh, I think it's Huckleberry Finn. See the Tom Sawyer Huckleberry Finn. I think it's Huckleberry Finn. He has the same sort of kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. I think him, Twain. I'm on the board of the Mark Twain House in Hartford, and I have funded the Mark Twain Literary Award the last four years, and I'm just a Twainiac, as, as they call us. So and I think in Huckleberry Finn, it, it's along the same lines of anybody anybody seeking to find find a plot in this novel will be shot hmm. or something like that. So it was a tongue-in-the-cheek, sort of a tip of the hat, a homage to Mark Twain. But so you don't want people looking for meaning or allegory in the novel? No, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. So again, it, it's fiction, and you know, I can ha I can have a little bit of fun, uh, but at the same time, I do want people. It, uh, again, a book offers lots of different ways to read it, and the best books grow with you. Um, I, the example I usually give is um, *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Uh, I know *Kill Kill a Mockingbird*'s gotten a lot of criticism over the years, and um, and particularly with like green the, the Green Book winning the best picture and you know valid claims of it being a white savior book told from a white perspective about a black person's story. Um, but with *The Kill a Mockingbird*, I first read it when I was probably maybe twelve or thirteen, and it sounded to be a great just kids book because you know the the narrator was was a girl, five or six year old girl who was a really cool scout. And she had a big brother and they lived in this little town and they had fun and. And that's really all I got out of it when I was that age. And then when I went back to read it later as an adult, um, all the other themes, the courtroom theme, um, the racism, um, Atticus Finch standing up uh, to all of that, that resonated with me a lot more. So I, the book had a lot of themes in there. I just had to grow and mature in order to be able to receive them. Um, and so the same with, you know, the finisher series. You could have... Kids who read it now and just think it's a crackerjack adventure with lots of cool stuff and monsters and this neat protagonist who never backs down. Um, but you could read some other themes, you know, the wall and the abuse of people um, who are in powerful positions, being an outsider, um, indifferent, and so you're not accepted, and people look down upon you for that. Those are universal themes that affect, you know, most of us our entire lives. And so if they want to read that into it later on in their lives when they're ready to accept it and think it, think beyond just an adventure you're on, then that's fine too. So when you hear from kids who have read the books, do you, do you feel like they're mostly just experiencing it as a fun adventure story or are they picking up on the, the deeper themes? You know, some, it really depends. Um, certainly the younger ones, 
Um, I think focus on Vega Jane is cool. I like Delph. I like the fact that she can fly. Um, and that's great. Um, some of the, you know, teenagers who have read the book, in particular, I've gotten comments about the wall um, and about bullying. And, you know, some have written us and, you know, about the theme of being an outsider. Um, always kind of looking in the glass and everybody else is inside and because you're different that you're not accepted. And that's a big thing, obviously, with, with teens who everything's changing about their lives, their bodies, their minds and all that are developing. And, um, you know, I, I grew up that way. I, I was, it was weird. I was an athlete in high school. I played football and I wrestled. Um, but I was never part of the jocks ever. And I was also, well, I sucked in math and science. I was really, really good in English and history. And when I went to math and science, I was a totally different person. I put my head down, never said anything. I felt stupid. And in the history and English classes, I was kind of the star, and I loved being in there. And, you know, I had friends. But I was never a member of, like, the, the cool kids. I was never a member of the of the intellectual kids. Because I didn't really see myself that way. And I, you know, I was aloof in high school and kept to myself. Um, so I know what it feels like to sort of not, not really belong to anything. And I'm not saying that people need to belong to anything, but particularly in those formative years, you know, there is the idea of um, being on the outside of the glass looking in. And, and it was, it was that way for me with publishing as well. I mean, I started writing short stories, trying to get them published when I was in, you know, high school and, um, went on to keep, you know, trying and trying 15, 16 years writing lots of different things short stories, novellas, screenplays, novels. And I felt like I was on the outside of glass looking in. I, you know, got to the point where I was like, this is just not going to happen. You know, you're just never going to get anything published and you should accept that. Uh, so I, I know that feeling really well. In a lot of the letters we get about uh, the Vega Jane series is that, you know, she's an outsider and, you know, I am too. It's hard to know where you fit in. Um, and so I think it, it just depends uh, on the age and maturity of the people. I don't expect a, you know, a nine or ten year old kid to get everything that's in this book. Um, but as they get older, I think more and more of it comes out. Well, and I think that experience of being an outsider is something that lots of fantasy fans can relate to. And I think that fantasy appeals particularly to people who are most dissatisfied with the status quo of the world as it exists. And that's, you know. Um, that's the appeal. That's the appeal of another world. Um, where they can, you know, feel like they belong to something or at least exist in, in a plane and in a way that they feel comfortable with. Um, and I totally get that. I mean, look, that's, I didn't have the benefit of a PlayStation or Xbox, but when I would go out and build my imaginary worlds outside, they felt very comfortable because, you know, it was everything that I wanted it to be, uh, that maybe I wasn't finding in the real world. So it can be, it can be comforting. Um, when you're feeling like you don't really have a place anywhere. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I, that you said that I thought was really interesting is you were talking about how hard it is to write for younger readers these days because, A, you're competing with uh, video games and, you know, movies and, uh, you know, streaming everything. And then also right. that kids are so uh, worldly these days that, you know, they're spending all day reading TV tropes and, and they're much harder to surprise or impress. Yes. No, that's all, that's all the case. I mean, I think kids today are far more sophisticated and exposed far more than, um, I ever was. And, you know, a couple of generations have followed me. Uh, my kids are old enough that they not, you know, now kids have smartphones and Facebook really wasn't a big thing, uh, or Twitter or Instagram when they were, you know, in middle and high school. 
Um, that all came a little bit later, which I think was kind of good because that creates a whole other arena of pressure on people. Um, but it is you. I, I tell people who are you know some of my adult writer friends who are thinking about yeah you know I thought about writing for a younger audience too, and I said well. Here's my advice. You better damn well bring your A game. <laughs> Don't write down to them. Don't think that you can just sort of be lazy and uh, it'll be enough um, because they'll 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 rip you apart. Um, and I think one reason is not only are they so sophisticated and now are exposed to so much more, um, but you know, kids by definition look they. <laughs> Their brain is not yet filled up with, gee, how am I going to make the mortgage payment or the car payment or the job is really, the boss is really pressuring me in this job. You don't have time to think about anything other than what's right, staring you right in the face. Uh, with kids, they have a little bit more leeway where they can, so they're incredibly detail oriented. And I said, you really have better be consistent with the rules that you're going to, you know, deploy in your fantasy because, you know, if you make a mistake, you say the wrong color, you know, twice. <laughs> Or somebody has a power that you never explain, or it's different from what you said it was, uh, or a description of a place is not exactly right each and every time, then they're going to call you out on it. And, you know, as well they should, but, you know, trust me, bring your A game. What do you think about when parents uh, put limits on how much video, how much time kids are allowed to spend playing video games and force them to read books? Do you think that that's effective? I don't think forcing anybody to do anything is effective. <laughs> Um, I think there are ways to allow kids to feel like they're empowered to make their own choices. And that's how you build a love of reading. And, you know, we do a lot. Uh, we have a foundation that's been working in the literacy field for nearly 20 years now. Um, and we found that uh, empowering people to make their own choices um, and giving them the uh, ability, the facts, the resources to make really good informed choices uh, is the best way to go. I applaud, I applaud school curriculums who um, don't force every kid in high school to read Paradise Lost, <laughs> you know, um, but allow them. You know, I understand that there are curriculums. I understand there is some requ- required reading, uh, but I would say in that realm, less is best. Uh, the best thing you can do to instill a joy of reading in kids is allow them to select what they want to read. You can get them in genres if you want. It'll, within those genres, allow them to go out and explore, go into the library, go online and find stuff that really appeals to them, allow them to read it, come in and report on it or talk about it or discuss it or write a paper on it. Uh, empowering people, allowing them to make their own choices, that's the best encouragement you can have. If you can show, if, the last thing you want to do is to, is make kids believe that reading is not fun. If you do that, they're never going to do it. You know, they're going to, they're going to in fact run away from it. Uh, the video game industry, I think, understands it really well. I mean, I, I know the business model where, like, my, my son does a lot of this stuff, too, and um, the big one right now, I guess, is is uh, Core's uh, Fortnite. Okay. So he said, yeah, you know, Dad, Fortnite is free, and then you have to buy all the accessories. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how they make their money, and he and it's, a, it's obviously a lot of money, but at the same time, what they're doing is they're allowing the choices going to the people, people playing the game, the consumers. Yeah, they're sort of shepherding down a certain way, but they have a lot of latitude of what they want to choose to do, what they want to choose to buy, how they want to choose to play this game. Same thing with books. Give the kids a million different choices. You know, you know what? Here's the world out there. Go find something to interest you. You like horses. You like mysteries. You like fantasy. Um, whatever you like, there's stuff out there. You know, just go, go find it. 
read it, have have a great time, and then on on the other side of it, we'll we'll talk about it. Maybe you write a paper, and we'll discuss it, and you'll have um, and then you'll load it up and go do another one. <laughs> it's all about your choices, so go for it. And that's how you instill a love of reading. Absolutely. So, uh, besides the Vega Jane series, which is obviously fantasy, are there other novels novels of yours that you think would particularly appeal to fantasy and science fiction fans? Um, that's a good question. Um, I did have um, there's a, a book I wrote years ago called The Winner, and it's a little bit sci-fi-ish in that the villain is really larger than life. He's an incredible master of disguise. But the cool thing about this guy is that um, he used science, not science fiction, but real science, to figure out how to fix the United States National Lottery so he can actually pick the winners himself. And it's sci-fi in the way that he becomes sort of a monster to these people. He only picks people who are really poor, um, who want to have, they feel like money is the answer to all of their problems in life. It's sort of a Faustian bargain. He'll tell you, you're poor, I can make you rich. It's wrong, but nobody will know except you and me. No one will ever find out. All you have to do is play the game. So will you do it? And uh, obviously most people decide to play the game. And then comes the horror of it all. And it really is almost like you're living in a different world because that's the world he created for you. So I might get a kick out of that one. I heard you talking about a book called No Man's Land. I haven't read it, but it sounded like maybe it deals with advanced military technology. It is, yeah. Um, when I wrote that book, I got a lot of people wrote it and said, wow, you know, you really went off the edge there. And uh, in writing this novel, it's about a super soldier um, guy who, you know, everybody's heard about exoskeletons, you know, the stuff they wear on the outside of their bodies that make them far stronger, jump higher, run faster about technology that um, built into helmets that make your your brain synapses work even faster so you can make quicker decisions, um, medical technology on the battlefield that can heal your wounds faster so they can get you back into the battle to fight some more or survive a battle. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, wounds that happen in the Middle Eastern wars uh, would have been non-survivable in the Vietnam War um, just because medical technology on the battlefield has improved so much. It's both good and bad. Obviously, you don't want soldiers to die. Um but at the same time, a lot of these soldiers are patched back up and sent back in to fight, and next time they do die. Um, and other times they might have just been sent home. So anyway, this guy, Paul Rogers, he doesn't have an exoskeleton. He has an endoskeleton, so it's built into his body. You don't see it. It made him super strong. Um, and he's gotten older now, but uh, the problem is the technology is literally disintegrating inside of him, which means he's also dying. Um, and when I, again, I... I know a lot of people in the military. I've done sort of like pseudo-TED Talks um, at DITRA, which is the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Um, uh, and they they are sort of uh, assigned to do some of the stuff. And there's uh, a research unit tied to the Defense Department. Their only goal in life is to do out-of-the-box, fantastical kind of research, billions of dollars a year, throw it against the wall, see if it works kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, building super soldiers by building super strong skeletal systems within their own bodies is one thing they're looking at uh, as well. And that's what I wrote about in No Man's Land. But I wrote about the consequences of doing that. Um, there was another book I wrote called The Simple Truth many years ago. It was my fourth book. And I got the idea for that because I read a story about the CIA's uh, drug experiments in the 70s trying to build um, super soldiers by unwittingly giving unwitting soldiers PCP, 
back then, PCP could make you as strong as four men um, and could give you this maniacal motor to just go out and fight and destroy. Obviously, now we know the side effects of that are terrible, but the CIA gave it to unwitting soldiers to see what the effects would be. Horrible, right? So the plot in that book was they'd given it to one soldier, he'd gone out and killed somebody, and now he's in prison for life. And years later, he had a letter from the DOD, and trust me, these things happen. The DOD sent a letter out to him saying, you know, We've done, a, we've done a review of this. It took us 27 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> but now uh, we're just writing to you to say we're sorry. <laughs> and then that was, you know, the start of his desire to escape from prison and, you know, get to the truth. Um, so those are kind of sci-fi. But I will tell you, I'll tell you the most chilling comment anybody ever has ever told me in the course of my research of my books I was writing a book in the intelligence field. It was sort of intelligence gathering, technology combined. And I'd written the scene. I was like, geez, this is ridiculous. You, you just, you've jumped the shark, pushed the envelope over the top. This is, you can't. So I, I called a buddy of mine up. He'd been in the intel field for a long time. I said, look, I'm just going to send you this chapter. It's only like six pages, but I think I just, I pulled the trigger. This is crazy stuff. Just let me know and tell me what I need to pull back on. And he said, no, I don't have to read the pages. And I said, no, I just want your opinion on, because I think I've just gone too far. So just, I just want you to validate that decision. And he goes, no, I don't have to read it. And I said, why, why won't you read the pages? And he said, look, if you can imagine it, we've already done it. So <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty chilling. Yeah. And he was totally sincere. I mean, he was not pulling my leg on that. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Um, all right. So we're, we're pretty much out of time. So just my final question, I guess, will be, do you have plans to write any more fantasy and science fiction uh, style books? In the you future? know, I, my, my appetite has certainly been whetted uh, by this experience. So I would, I, I'll say this. I would love to get back into it again and find another story that I, I could tell. Because um, once you jump in there, it gets really addictive. And uh, I imagine, you know, a lot like, you know, gaming. Um, <laughs> it's just it's fun. Um, and, but I, I don't want to get back into it just to get it back into it. I want to have the right story and, uh, you know, be able to make sure that I can actually do it in a way that I would feel proud of. So, um, it would have to fit that criteria, but yeah, I could definitely see myself doing it again. All right, cool. Yeah, definitely looking forward to whatever you come up with next. And so we've been speaking with David Baldacci about his novel, The Finisher. So David, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to David Baldacci for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Mike Deemers, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. 
Thank you for listening.